a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ulrika Olliker, speaking to you from Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also in Brussels. As we record this podcast, Russia is still reeling from an attempted insurrection, and pundits around Twitter and social media nets are competing for the hottest take as we all learn more about what happens next in Russia and to Wagner. But if you want to hear about that, I recommend you listen to the newest episode of our sister podcast, Hold Your Fire, in which I do my best to unpack all that with the host, Richard Atwood. We're going to make it available also as a special crossover edition of War and Peace. Here, meanwhile, we're taking a step back from the fray to put our philosopher hats on and try to answer a different question. Should the war in Ukraine be seen as a left-wing progressive war, or should it be seen as a neoconservative war? And you know better than anyone what's at stake in this conflict, not just for Ukraine, but for the freedom of democracies throughout Europe and around the world. As Russia's war against Ukraine rages, Western support for Ukraine has been increasingly heavily scrutinized. Critics argue that the military support the U.S. and other Western partners give Kiev has clear parallels to American wars of choice, like the invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq in the early 2000s. The Western backing for Ukraine, they argue, is just the latest example of a neoconservative foreign policy where the U.S. and other Western powers claim to promote ideals of peace and democracy as cover for military interventionism. Meanwhile, Ukraine and its backers tell a very different story. They point out that the war in Ukraine was not initiated by the West, but is Ukraine's defense, with Western help, against Russia's unprovoked invasion. Indeed, Russia's invasion in many ways looked like it was trying to do what the United States had done in Iraq, carry out a military invasion with the goal of regime change. For Russia, it hasn't worked out that way. So how should we view the war in Ukraine? Is it the latest iteration of Western interventionism of the early 2000s, or is it a new, more left-wing way of conducting a war, or is it something else entirely? To talk about all this, we're delighted to welcome Hans Kundanani to the show. Hans is an associate fellow in the Europe program at Chatham House, where he also used to be Europe director. He's worked at other think tanks too, such as the German Marshall Fund and the European Council on Foreign Relations. He's written extensively on issues ranging from democracy and political participation to European and US foreign policy. He's authored several books, including The Paradox of German Power. His new book, Euro Whiteness, Culture, Empire and Race in the European Project, comes out in August. Hans, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you very much. Great to be here. So I want to start off by explaining to listeners that the whole idea for this grew out of conversation Hans and I were having a while back. Uh, I had said uh, in some remarks uh, on a panel discussion that I thought this war was the first war in a long time that seemed like a sort of a left-wing war, one liberals felt good about backing. And I hearkened back to the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s, when liberals of all stripe joined the ultimately unsuccessful Republicans fighting Franco's nationalists. And Hans asked, well, how does it differ from a neoconservative war? And I asked, well, I don't know, let's unpack that. What makes a war neoconservative? What makes it liberal? What, what makes it any of these things at all? 
So I guess I'll start off by asking you again, what do you think makes for a neoconservative war? And is there such a thing at all? And if so, how is it different from a liberal or progressive war? Yeah, so I guess the first thing I should probably say is that I think both of us in that exchange were sort of, you know, slightly uh, simplifying in calling it either a left-wing war or a neocon war. Clearly, in any kind of situation like this, there are going to be people with different motivations, either supporting or, or opposing the war. And I think that's the case, you know, with the war in Ukraine, you know, in terms of people in Europe and the United States supporting our support of Ukraine. I think people are doing so for multiple different reasons. Um, what I meant by the neocon support for Ukraine, I mean, it's clearly the case that a lot of the most vocal supporters for Ukraine are people who were neocons or are neocons. I mean, I think, I think that's fairly clear. And there's, I think, been a sort of resurgence of neoconservatism, um, not just since the war began, but I think part of this goes back to the election of Trump and so on, because I think some of the neoconservatives who had up to that point been slightly discredited figures have sort of come back, first of all, as anti-Trumpers and, and now, you know, as very vocal um, supporters of Ukraine. Now, when I use the term neoconservatism, though, some people use that just as a kind of a generic kind of insult. I don't really mean it that way. I mean it in a more precise kind of historic, historical kind of way, actually. And it gets quite complicated. So bear with me for a second. But I think the, the, the best account of the history of the neoconservative movement is by someone called Justin Weiss. And what I think he shows very clearly is that there are three generations of neoconservatives. The first generation, this is in the 1960s in New York City, has actually very little to do with foreign policy. You know, a lot of it's to do with things like education policy and so on. And then you have the second generation of neoconservatives roughly in the 1970s. And this, I think, is, is the one that's particularly relevant here. And these are essentially people on the left, particularly Democrats. Paul Wolfowitz, I think, for me, is the paradigmatic case, who become very disillusioned with what they see as a sort of amoral, realist foreign policy that's being pursued, you know, both by Republicans and by Democrats. You know, and Kissinger, I guess, would be the sort of epitome of that foreign policy. And they worry that, you know, values and in particular democracy has kind of got lost. And so they kind of want to see us a more sort of idealist foreign policy. I think that's the crucial thing. It's a kind of a backlash against realism. And it's an attempt to think about foreign policy in a much more ideological way with democracy at the centre and this very binary struggle between democracies and authoritarian states. And then you have the third generation of neoconservatives, which is obviously, you know, you know, the George W. Bush administration at the time of the Iraq war. And I think the situation we're in now is, is very different in many ways from, from the Iraq war, not least, um, Olya, in the way you mentioned that this is obviously not a war that, you know, the United States started. But what I mean by neoconservatism in, in the case of the war in Ukraine is, again, this kind of very binary democracy versus authoritarianism framing. And what's different, I think, now is that, you know, and I think this is very much a sort of post-2016 kind of thing, about democracy defence rather than democracy promotion. So there is that quite crucial difference. Nevertheless, I think this entire framing of international politics as a struggle between democracy and authoritarianism 
is you know really what I mean when I talk about uh, neoconservatism and neoconservative foreign policy. So I think that's really interesting, and I think this question of values and war and what are you fighting for is critical to this. But what what I'm really interested in there's also this argument that there's a very thin line between wars of liberal interventionism and neoconservative wars. Right? The idea is that we're the good guys and we're fighting for good causes. But I don't think there's a modern war where people haven't argued that they're the good guys and they're fighting for good causes. I mean, again, we go back to the Spanish Civil War, and the Republicans were fighting for democracy against authoritarians, and Franco and his nationalists were fighting, according to them, against godless communists and anarchists to defend Christianity. So the values are always there. Is there something specific about the values that neoconservatives are defending that makes them, well, neoconservative? Well, yes, and and I think it's precisely this, um, as I say, it's democracy, um, also to some extent human rights. You know, and, and so I thought it's very interesting that you, you know, when in your introduction, you know, you said you feel like this is the first kind of war in a long time that people on the left can can identify with. Um, I don't think that's right. I, you know, for me, that actually, in a way, I think this has been the story of all of these, as you say, liberal interventions, you know, when this wasn't so much about democracy defense and more about democracy promotion. Um, and in particular, for me, and, and, and you know, I speak sort of quite personally here, for, because this was quite a formative moment in my own sort of intellectual development was the Kosovo War. This is also why, you know, I, I brought up the concept of neoconservatism in response to you talking about the left, Olia, because I think this is exactly what happened in the 90s. And I think it happened particularly to my generation on the centre left. You know, and I guess Tony Blair is the sort of emblematic figure here, right? I wrote a, a book on the, the, the German 1968 generation, you know, and, and this was the, the, you know, the government of Gerhard Schroeder and Joschka Fischer and the way that they thought about the, uh, the Kosovo war and then, and then the Iraq war. So it wasn't just in Britain this was happening. I think it was also the case in the United States, particularly in Germany as well. And so I think at that moment, what you had was precisely this temptation for people on the center left. And I say, I include myself among that to think that you could use um, military power, and in particular, American military power, um, for good. Um, in particular, to promote democracy and human rights in the case of the war in Kosovo to prevent a genocide. And it's precisely out of that moment that, you know, the whole idea of liberal interventionism or humanitarian intervention, responsibility to protect and so on came out. And, you know, that then directly, I think, leads to the, the disaster of the war in Iraq. And, you know, as I say, I think at the time, in in some ways, you know, I think it was quite understandable that people on the left kind of went down that route, partly because after Kosovo, it seemed as if that had been successful. Um, and so you wanted to sort of take this further. I think in retrospect, this looks really different now, mainly because of what happened in Iraq, but also Afghanistan. Um, and so what slightly worries me about the current moment and this resurgence of neoconservatism is precisely the idea that we've sort of, you know, forgotten all of those lessons. And I do slightly feel as if part of why people are so um, 
excited, I think I would say, about um, the war in Ukraine is that it allows us to put some of this stuff behind us, not least the way that the, the disaster in Afghanistan culminated in the debacle of the, the fall of, of Kabul. And, and I think for many people, particularly for neocons, I think this is uh, a way to put all, all of that behind them. So the war we're not talking about, and I want Alyssa to come into this uh, shortly, but I do want to just quickly say the war we're not talking about is World War II, which in principle everybody could get behind, and which is certainly uh, thought about as a war for democracy, for human rights, for the right to be alive, and was also a very much a near-realist war for controlling territory, right? And how does that fit into your paradigm? Yeah, I'm glad you you brought that up. I've sort of sometimes had the feeling that in these conversations among the left, what we are kind of arguing about is, is this more like World War One or is this more like World War Two? Um, you know, because there are some, particularly on the far left, who see this as basically a clash between two different empires, you know, in the same way that World War One was a clash of empires. And there are others who see it more in terms of clash between good and evil, which obviously fits the World War Two paradigm. I guess, again, this is where it gets quite tricky, because... The neocons have wanted to see every war as a repeat of World War Two. Um, these are precisely the arguments that were that were always made, um, you know, for you know every. I mean, as I think you said earlier on, Olia, you know, for not not just you know the, the sort of post Cold War kind of wars, uh, but also you know during the Vietnam War and so on. You know, there are great studies on this on on the sort of role of that you know 1938 sort of Munich analogy, right, and the way in which even in the context of the Cold War, let alone in the post Cold War period. You know, NASA was Hitler, you know, and then, in the, as I say, in the post-Cold War period, then Saddam was Hitler. You know, we've constantly used that that sort of analogy. None of these wars, you know, are quite the same as World War Two. There are some similarities, but there are also some differences. And, and, and so I suppose I, I'm not quite sure how helpful it is to think of this as being analogous to World War Two. But the other thing that's really puzzling about that analogy is if that were right, if we really did think of this as World War II, then why would we be only supporting the Ukrainians to the extent that we are? Why wouldn't we be all in in the way that we clearly were in World War II? I think that already tells you that there are some huge differences between the situation now and in, in World War II. One of which, by the way, is the existence of nuclear weapons, which I, think I was is a big going part to of the say explanation for our hesitation. I was going to say nuclear weapons. And also the fact that it isn't really a wall, a world war. I mean, this is taking place in one territory. So, you know, I think the, the analogy to, to World War II really does not hold up. And I think this is, you know, this, this idea that Ukraine is this existential battle for the whole globe is one of the issues in particular that has annoyed policymakers and citizens in non-Western countries. I, that's, that's exactly right. And, and, and this is a big part of why, as somebody on the left, why I'm much more hesitant than, than many people are uh, about, uh, you know, our support for Ukraine. Because, you know, I'm, 
you know, I'm not just interested in the Ukrainians. I'm also interested in the rest of the world and in particular in the global south. I mean, I think if you're on the left, you have to start from, you know, you have to you have to start from that place, regardless of the rights and wrongs of Ukraine. And we can get into that more. I think you also have to think about its consequences uh, for the rest of the world and in particular for the poorest people in the world who are in the global south. And, you know, that I think then, you know, positions you slightly differently than, again, neocons who literally want to see this as the centre of the world and nothing else matters. I mean, aside from the nuclear weapons, I would say that you don't have to make it a world war if you can get away with not making it a world war, right? If you can attain your goals and keep the fighting limited, but you can still defend security and democracy and sovereignty and progressive values and so forth, why wouldn't you do that that way? particularly given the risk of escalation and nuclear weapons. And I do think that without nuclear weapons, this would be a very, very different war. I also think it's really important to point out in this discussion that Moscow frames this very much as World War II, except in their version, Ukraine is the Nazis and the West is backing the Nazis. I mean, I can poke holes in that narrative for hours, but it's really important to identify that as a big part of how they sell the war at home and to some extent abroad, mostly to fans in Europe. I think when it comes to the world as a whole and its frustration with this, this is kind of the challenge. Like, Do, do Western states not have a right to defend sovereignty? Do Western states not have a right to defend interests? because of the damage it might do to others. The damage of Russian success in Ukraine, what it would do to European security and the knock-on effects to global security, I think are something else that a lot of people in the world as a whole do recognize. And that's one of the reasons you do have actually pretty solid support for Ukraine, even if there is frustration with some of the attitudes uh, that you hear from Europe. So I just I just want to push back on that. But I think it also shows just how complicated all of this is, that there's not one reason for any war, that it's always values mixed up with geostrategy. You know, wars are almost always overdetermined, right? Uh, so all of these things feed in. But I think it's really interesting that this war specifically divides both the left and the right, that you hear arguments on the left and on the right, both very much for the war, for support of Ukraine, and very much against. Yeah, I think I think that's right. Although my impression is that there's an extraordinary consensus on the war in Ukraine, much more, I mean, at least in, in you know, I'm thinking here of in, in Europe, uh, yeah, I think, probably it's, I think it's a bit less clear cut in the in the US. Yes. Um, and, you know, much more than any of the previous conflicts, you know, that we've the ones that I've lived through anyway. I mean, even the Iraq war, you know, there was a very, you know, we, we were very divided about the Iraq war. And, and so one of the things that's really troubled me, actually, during the last, you know, uh, 18 months 
is the way in which, um, you know, almost immediately there was such a consensus on the war in Ukraine. Um, the space for dissent, I think, shrunk much, much more than, as I say, in any of the previous conflicts I've experienced. And that I think there's also, you know, been a, from my perspective, sort of a massive failure of, of the media and, and others to sort of actually ask difficult questions and, and even to, you know, report on, on the war in an, in an, in an unbiased, uh, in an unbiased way. Um, so I, mean, I think it's when you say, Olia, that the, the, the right and the left are both divided. I mean, you know, if I look at, say, the UK, where I, where I live, actually, it's quite extraordinary to me how, how little the left is divided on this. You know, you have, you know, some in, on the far left who are very critical, um, but actually the left is much more united in a very hawkish way than I've ever seen before. And so I think it does raise, raise you know, precisely this question of that, that, that we're discussing. But I, but I don't quite see, at least in, in, in the UK, the, the left being particularly divided on this or even discussing this very much or asking difficult questions, as I say, apart from, you know, the, the extreme left, frankly. I mean, it doesn't really feel like in Europe anyone is asking those hard questions about the it war. may it may be that in, very few in the, people. The, the conversation that prompted this that Olia and I was having was with a group of of, of European social democrats and you know I, I, my, my impression is that in southern Europe there is more discussion you know to Italy and so on there is more uh, dissent as it were but certainly in the UK it's quite extraordinary to me how little debate you know we've had about this and and everybody beats up on the Germans for having had this agonized debate uh, you know, for example, about sending Leopard two main battle tanks. I'm frankly envious of Germany at this point, um, you know, because the way that Britain decided to send Challenger two, you know, whether or not you think it's the right decision, there was just no discussion about it. And it just kind of happened. And, you know, it wasn't even a big story in the news at the time. And certainly, you know, very few difficult questions were being asked about about the strategy that it was part of uh, and so on. So as somebody whose job it is to constantly explain the strategy, I feel like the difficult questions get asked all the time. And I guess my answer for it has nothing to do, honestly, with liberalism or conservatism. My answer for it does go back to realist foreign policy and the threat posed by a country that sees its security as requiring dominance over its neighbors and being willing to use military force to attain that and that country having nuclear weapons and looking to use them coercively. So I think it's really pretty simple and you don't need, you don't need the ideology, right? I said earlier that it's all overdetermined, but the, the realist argument is sufficient. I think what's interesting to me is kind of the way that everybody does draw on their own values to tell the story of why it's important. Yeah. So you're, you're saying, Olya, that the realist argument is sufficient to explain the Russian invasion or, or to explain our response? Nope. I'm using the realist argument to explain our response. I can also yeah. use it to explain the Russian but, invasion, but there I've got the Russians making a lot of mistakes. It's the opposite of the narrative you often hear about what, how neorealism looks at this. So I can use neorealism to explain Russian insecurity also. I can also use uh, persistent factors in Russian foreign policy. I can use feminism. I can use ideology. I can use a wide range of explanations to explain why Russia behaves the way it does. But I think the Russian threat and kind of this recognition that this is dangerous to us 
is a really good way to explain the Western response to Russia's So that's really interesting because it brings us back in a way to the the first question you asked me about neoconservatism. Because, you know, I, you know, tend to be on the realist side as, as well. But what's so extraordinary to me about the way that we, as you say, talk, it's, you know, it's how we talk about, you know, what we're doing in Ukraine, why we're supporting Ukraine is literally the opposite of realism, right? And, and, and this was, you know, as I say, what I was, what I was driving at in uh, my answer to your first question, which is the way I understand neoconservatism is precisely as a reaction against realism. Right. It's a a response to what they saw as the excessive realism of Kissinger and so on in the 1970s that had lost emphasis on values and lost what they would call moral clarity. So, you know, what's extraordinary to me is that the, the way that, you know, particularly with this very ideological democracy versus autocracy framing that, you know, by the way, isn't just, you know, how the war in Ukraine is being framed, it's how everything, in particular the China challenge, obviously, is being framed, is literally the opposite of realism. So, you know, I, I guess I, I can sort of agree with you, Olia, that actually what's going on may be more realist than that. But it's certainly not the way that this war is being framed. And And why is the war not being framed in that way? I think a big part of that is because there would be less public support for it if it weren't framed in terms of this battle between good and evil. So the neocons uh, of, the, uh, of the second generation, they win in the sense that they require us to explain wars through values. Now, I'm not sure that that was original to them, right? But I mean, I do agree that this is what you always fall back on, right? You cannot say simply we're doing this for our security, for some reason, that's not enough, uh, or politicians don't feel it's enough. Policymakers don't feel well, it's I, enough. Well, I see, I, because I, I actually don't think it, it is enough, you know. And, and I think actually, you know, if you start to actually interrogate that, you know, I think it actually starts to kind of fall apart a little bit. So, you know, Ollie, you and I have had this discussion before, but, but you know, it seems to me that actually, our security in terms of NATO countries, you know, we're much less threatened by Russia. Uh, than we were before February 24th, 2022. I did used to worry about some kind of incursion into uh, Narva in Estonia, for example. Um, but I'm actually, you know, unlike most people, I'm much more relaxed about this, you know, since we've seen how bad the Russian military is, at least in conventional terms. And I think the events of last weekend sort of illustrate even further how, how weak uh, uh, Russia is. And it becomes quite difficult, for example, to justify, you know, massive increases in defence spending beyond even 2%, you know, at a time when, for example, in my country, in the UK, the National Health Service is falling apart. I think it becomes quite difficult to sell that to voters, actually, um, let alone, you know, in Germany. So uh, I think that is part of why you have this uh, very ideological framing, is to kind of um, sell this to, to voters in, a, I think, slightly dishonest kind of way. I agree with you up to a point. I would say that I feel more secure now than I did before February because the West has supported Ukraine and because the West has been able to help Ukraine push Russia back and weaken it further. And this continues to be necessary because if you stop, right, then the Russians draw the conclusion that their nuclear weapons are sufficient for coercive foreign policy and for aggressive behavior. 
and they will do it again. We've seen them do it before. They will do it again. So I agree with you that in general, we are safer, but we are safer because we have backed Ukraine. Uh, I also agree with you on the question of just how much do you need militarily in order to continue to counter a country like Russia in the long term, though I think that might be another podcast. Uh, and I do want to, Alyssa, to jump in. So, I mean, I think you're both right. I mean, we're, I think we are, have seen at different times the conflict depicted both in terms of security. And I think the security issue becomes more important the closer you get to the Ukraine border, the closer you get to Russian border. And it's also been presented as a values proposition as well. You know, as you said, good against evil, obviously with the Russians being on the evil side. But Unless you're Russia, in which case it's presented as good against evil. <laughs> yeah, but from from a west from yeah. a from the you know the Western perspective, that's that's how it's portrayed. But my, I mean, the bigger question is, what does that actually mean? What does any of this mean for the events on the ground? You know, we're still seeing the war raging. We're seeing people dying, millions displaced. How how does it impact on the ground? How the narratives are built, and which of the narratives uh, wins out? And does it matter? It's a good question. I, I guess I, I, Go ahead. I, I'm not. I'm not sure it, it, it matters. Uh, what, you know whether you know you frame it in realist terms or in sort of more ideological terms. Um, but to return to our sort of original, you know, the original sort of question, you know, is this you know a left wing war? Or is this a neocon war? I guess my starting point is that you know, as somebody on the left. Um, you know, I do want to think about this war from a, you know, and how we should respond to it from a left wing perspective. Um, and this is where, you know, for me, the crucial thing is, you know, the global south that we discussed earlier, because, you know, I think that has to matter to anybody that cares about inequality, which I think is almost the definition of what it means to be on the left. Then I, I just think it immediately puts the, the war in a different perspective. And, you know, given the, you know, disastrous consequences of this for the global south i think then it immediately pushes you in a direction which you know hawks you know get very angry about uh but you know a position where you you know you basically want this war to end as soon as possible you know rather than saying we you know must uh win whatever whatever that means um russia must be defeated that becomes you know less i think you know it's, it's no longer the starting point the starting point is you know how can we prevent these disastrous consequences for the global south and you know that is how i think much of the rest of the world is 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 looking looking at this and 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 so i think you know basically if you're on the left in europe or the united states i think you have to essentially look at it in roughly the same kind of way now what that exactly means in terms of you know the war we can we can get into that but i think that has to be the starting point so uh, we're running low on time um so i'm going to quickly just say i was speaking at uh, an event in stockholm and uh, i was on a panel it was on ukraine and an audience member stood up and said look i'm from south africa i don't care if the peace that comes is a Western peace or a Russian peace or a Chinese peace, I just need the trade to start flowing again. And I understand that position, but I would also say he's wrong because the the kind of peace determines the kind of trade and it determines the prospects for the global South and for equality going forward. 
So from a security standpoint and an equality standpoint writ large, I have pretty good left-wing reasons to think that this war needs to end with Russia unsuccessful. So I think there's kind of a middle ground. There could be a middle ground where you prosecute the war. We have been supporting Ukraine to prosecute the war with the hope of having a peace that is more palatable to the West. At the same time, though, the West has to make sure as much as it can and to the extent that is possible that it is sheltering the global South from the effects of the war. So, you know, it has to find ways. One, it has to accept that the sanctions that have been applied are having an impact. And it also needs to find ways to protect the global South, particularly those countries that are especially vulnerable, um, particularly those countries that are themselves fragile or in conflict situations. If it, if it wants to see a an end to the war that, you know, that is palatable to to the West. I think that that middle ground, you know, could exist in theory, but it's not what I see happening. Um, in fact, one of the things... No, that, it's not. It's, it's one of the things that has really troubled me during the last year is is the, the way in which people now talk about the Global South, the contempt, the, the open contempt that is now expressed for the Global South in a way that, you know, I find breathtaking. And I don't think, I you know, I didn't used to hear people talk about the Global South in this way before the war in, in Ukraine. If you think about, you know, what might happen after the, the war ends, you know, and obviously it's very difficult to even talk about this because we don't know how the war is going to end and everything depends on that. But, you know, obviously you already have lots of Europeans talking about, you know, a, a Marshall Plan for Ukraine. Um, and, you know, my feeling is that before the war in Ukraine began, um, people in, in Europe and uh, were, were just beginning to grapple with some of these questions in relation to the global south. Um, you know, for example, one of the things I write about in, in the book that you kindly mentioned at the beginning that's, that's coming out in August is, you know, this embryonic debate that we're starting to have in Europe about reparations for European colonialism. Right. Seems to me that the war in Ukraine has set that back massively. Um, and so, you know, if you if there is going to be a very generous, you know, Marshall Plan for Ukraine, I think the chances that Europeans will actually do something meaningful in relation to the global south, you know, even in terms of, you know, things like debt relief or a million other things that, that Europeans could do, let alone in terms of actually a project of reparations, that prospect need, now seems further away uh, than ever before to me, actually. And this is what I find particularly depressing. And I think for somebody on the left, that has to be a problem. So I think that's going to have to be the last word, though I could keep going. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I suspect you could too. Uh, but uh, we are out of time. I feel like uh, we just scratched the great. surface. But <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, no, I think uh, we could do a whole series of podcasts on this. Hans, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. This was really interesting. To read more from Hans, you can follow him on Twitter. He's at Hans Kundandani. You can also find more of his work on the Chatham House website, as well as his regular contributions to outlets, including The Guardian, Foreign Policy and The New Statesman. And we'll give another plug for his new book that's coming out in August, Euro Whiteness, 
culture, empire and race in the European project. To read more of Crisis Group's work on Ukraine, check out our website. That's www.crisisgroup.org. Uh, we'd like to encourage you to follow Crisis Group and us on various social media platforms. On Twitter, Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Elissa is at Elissa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Olaker. I'm also at Olya Olaker on Mastodon, which I've been neglecting terribly. We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Vygursky, and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, go out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to make sure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We look forward to chatting with you again in a couple of weeks. And please do tune in to the Hold Your Fire episode in which uh, I talked to Richard Atwood about uh, the Russian insurrection. But uh, until next time, goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.